I'm Dave Cauley, investigative journalist and host of the podcast, Cold. In October of 1985, a woman named Cherie Warren left work at a busy Salt Lake City office. To meet her estranged husband at a downtown auto dealership. She never made it home. Cherie's car surfaced weeks later in Las Vegas. In the parking lot of a hotel casino. No one knows how it got there. Strange. It was strange. Both Cherie's estranged husband and her boyfriend raised suspicion for investigators. I kind of thought that he might have done something. But no arrests were ever made. In Cold Season 3, we dig into double lives, make new connections in the case, and examine the difficulty raised by reasonable doubt. We want answers just as much as anyone else. They have creeps like that now, too, so nothing's changed. That's the new Cold Season 3, The Search for Cherie. Now available anywhere you get your podcasts. Welcome back to Live Mike. I'm Lee Lonsberry. i, I got to get this COVID stuff out of my head. I, I'm all distracted by these numbers. Uh, we may return uh, later on in the program, but, uh, but right now, l- let's move on. Let's take a break from this COVID stuff, and let's just remember the guidelines and uh, you know, stay safe. Personal responsibility should be the, you know, the driving force behind our decisions, but uh, let's kick that up a notch. Really. Uh, I, I want to talk to you for a moment here about facial recognition software in the state of Utah, specifically in the field of law enforcement, it has had a kind of an interesting story. There have been some legislative efforts to uh, rein in some of the abilities uh, held by law enforcement at the state level. And, well, th- those efforts have not, at least in the legislative sense, been uh, exactly effective, though they have uh, given way to some conversations. And those conversations uh, have in turn, uh, resulted in some internal policies. There was just yesterday uh, on Utah's Capitol Hill in a uh, kind of a remote sense. Every, everything's remote now. So when I say on Utah's Capitol Hill or in the Salt Lake City classroom, uh, just know I'm really just talking about people staring into a computer screen. <laughs> yesterday, uh, there was uh, a meeting, uh, an interim committee meeting, where Brian Red, Chief Brian Red, with the Utah Department of Uh, Public Safety and the State Bureau of Investigation, he discussed uh, a bit the the, the current state of facial recognition. Here's uh, some of uh, Chief Red explaining uh, how facial recognition works right now. Law enforcement will have a a criminal investigation. They'll be trying to identify an individual. They will submit the photo and a case number and a reason code and a reason for running the check. He continues by explaining what they need before using the facial recognition system. We now require additional information and a supervisor approval for a facial recognition check from a law enforcement agency, so they will fill out the information in Eusegis. They will have to provide a case number, uh, a reason for running the check, a statement demonstrating the need, and a supervisor approval. Connor Boyack is the president of Libertas Institute and joins me now. Uh, I'll point out, Connor, you as well have been working with legislators for some years now on exactly uh, this issue. First off, thanks for joining me. How you doing? Uh, I'm very well, Lee. Thanks for having me on. And, and we should clarify uh, briefly at the outset of our chat. Uh, it's not been multiple years. It's, it's been almost precisely one year. It was one year ago that we, the public, learned that our government was even using facial recognition technology at all. Kind of the story blew wide open, and it's since that time we've had the conversations. But they've been using this tool for like a decade, 
without the public even knowing that our driver license photos, including the photos of our kids, minors, are being scanned repeatedly daily for these law enforcement purposes. So this is just a fairly recent revelation that groups like Libertas and the ACLU have been engaging on trying to make sure we can put some privacy controls in place. As you heard from Chief Red uh, yesterday, and he describes uh, the the you know the, the the procedures which the Department of Public Safety is now engaged in, he made mention of your organization. Uh, are you satisfied with what he explained as the new standard operating procedure yesterday? Uh, I'll give credit uh, to to Chief Red and the others he's working with. They have tried to internally as you pointed out at the beginning of the segment, make some policy changes. However, those are very minor and they're much easier to do. There are some points of contention, though, where uh, during the legislative session earlier this year, we had some compromise. The bill was very late in the session, so it, it wasn't able to advance. For example, should facial recognition be able to be used for you know, petty theft or for jaywalking, right? If you have some of these minor offenses, should we have a law enforcement that's empowered to do facial recognition for just the small stuff? Or should this be reserved for like, you know, felonies and, and very dangerous things? Should law enforcement be able not only to search the driver license photos, but our social media presence, right? Google uh, search, Google images, uh, lifetime scanning, Right. The government has many feeds uh, around the state or can can work with uh, private partners to access all kinds of video feeds, body cameras. Right. What are the boundaries around this? And because this technology has now been in use for a decade and is quickly evolving, if the legislature doesn't step in and put guardrails around this, We've clearly seen that law enforcement is just going out and using these new technologies and tools without any oversight, without really any awareness, without any laws uh, putting those guardrails around it. That's why we think the legislature needs to be proactive and put those restrictions in place so that there are boundaries around how this very minority report Orwellian kind of technology could evolve into if it's not controlled. Was it it Bramble last year uh, who had the piece of legislation you're referring to? It was, yes. Is, is there an effort to revive that? And did that, uh, did that not ultimately make it across the, the finish line due to timing? Or what, what, were, the, what were the roadblocks there? Uh, it, it was primarily due to timing. It, it was late in the session. Uh, there were a few reasons why several bills uh, were very late in drafting. The legislature lost a couple of attorneys. They were just very slow and backlogged. So this bill suffered uh, because of that. However, apart from just timing, the other reason why it failed is because it had some very 11th hour objections from other law enforcement. We were negotiating with Chief Red and the Department of Public Safety. They run what's called a fusion center, which right. is kind of this you know, intelligence uh, uh, you know, facility that works with federal partners and local law enforcement. And there's some you know, uh, conflict between them and, and police chiefs and, and so forth. So the police chiefs came out of the woodwork uh, and, and the attorney general's office and said, oh, well, we might want to do facial recognition as well, where our bill said that everything had to be centrally done just by the Department of Public uh, Safety, they could receive requests from any police agency and say, hey, here's a photo, you know, can you do facial recognition on this? But all of the law enforcement agencies said, well, we want to retain the ability in the future to have our own facial recognition systems, to which we said, no, 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 like, let's have 
like one agency kind yeah. of uh, be the, the point of contact, the clearinghouse where we can kind of have some tight regulation and not have, you know, 50, 80, 100 different law enforcement agencies all using these tools. And so those last minute objections certainly didn't help uh, any last ditch effort on our part to try and push the bill forward at a late stage. So Senator Bramble was like, okay, let's let's just have some more conversations. We're not going to be able to get this done this late. Is centralizing it, bringing it all under under one roof and the other uh, stipulations you mentioned, are those all compromises? If you could have your way, would you do away with this as a tool for law enforcement? Um, I, I am a, a pro-technology kind of guy. I mean, I think these, these technologies are, are really amazing and they can actually facilitate some very interesting things. So for our organization, I won't speak for the ACLU, who, who we've worked closely with on this. But for our part, uh, we are not anti-facial recognition. We don't want to ban the whole thing. However, we do think there need to be some very heavy restrictions uh, so that things don't get out of hand. And so, you know, centralizing it, regulating it, having oversight uh, for when it is used, I think those are reasonable things. And, uh, and so that's why we were able to find that consensus before the last-minute objections from other law enforcement. Look, I, I think as you talk to the public, you know, do you want your government doing facial recognition on, on, you know, your photos all the time? Well, they may say, okay, like if it's like a really bad dude and we want to catch a, a horrendous criminal, someone who shot a cop or things like that. Okay, sure. But not this open-ended, you know, field day where they can use it for any purpose, uh, you know, without any oversight. That's where I think there's reasonable minds can come together and say, let's lock it down in all these other cases and allow it only in certain cases where it might be justified. Connor Boyack, president of Libertas Institute. Thank you so much. I look forward to speaking to you again sometime soon. Thanks again. Thanks again, Lee. All righty. We're going to take a quick break. And when we return, I'm going to tell you an $8 billion story. It started in 1982 and it ended today. That's coming up on Live Mike. I'm Lee Lonsberry and this is KSL News Radio. Two years ago, Americans watched in horror as a crisis unfolded at the Kabul airport. There's desperation and anguish. More than 80,000 Afghans have since arrived in America. But this story is still unfolding. I'm Andrea Smartin. In my new podcast, Stranger Becomes Neighbor, we'll find out what happens to these new arrivals in our communities. Who would help our newest neighbors? Follow us at kslpodcast.com, Apple Podcasts, or anywhere else you listen.